Welcome to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hello. We're going to talk about a lot of cool things today. We're going to talk about uh, the Tigers who are shockingly just crushing the ball and somehow, you know, not performing the way you would think based on that. Uh, We're going to talk about someone who I think is actually an elite hitter, even though no one really thinks of him that way. Something the Dodgers are doing that is, I think, really kind of cool out of the bullpen. And uh, we are going to induct a defensive play into our StatCast Hall of Fame. Matt, how are you? I'm great. Are you excited? Always. Are you are you upset we're up here and not watching Luis Perdomo about to take on Jake Arrieta? I had to get a Luis Perdomo mention at least I once in our show. Him. Uh, he pitched a little better last time, FYI. So, he did. Uh, the bandwagon is uh, filling up again. I'm, I'm excited to finish the podcast and go watch Perdomo versus Arrieta. Day baseball. Uh, it's just the best thing when you have a job that allows you to watch day baseball. We talk about the Tigers for a second. So it's the final day of May, right? So it's a good time to kind of look back at what's happened in May. And as I like to do, I kind of looked at a monthly leaderboard and I looked at hard hit leaders. And what we have defined hard hit leaders, as I think I've said before, is 95 miles an hour. That's our, our break point for, for a hard hit baseball. And just to give you a quick explanation why, so far this year, when the majors hit the ball 95 miles an hour or more, they're hitting 546 with a slugging percentage of over 1,100. That's very, very good. 94 and below, it's 217 with a 254 slugging percentage, quite bad. Now, as we said, launch angle matters a lot as well, but certainly if you hit the ball very hard, uh, you're off to an extremely good start. So that is our hard hit percentage barrier, 95 miles an hour above. So when I looked at all of the leaders for May, who had at least 25 balls in play, this is over 300 hitters, and I looked at the guys who had the highest percentage of hard hit baseballs, so batted balls over 95 miles an hour, uh, where the major league average was 33%. Number one on that list, 59%, J.D. Martinez. Detroit Tigers. Number two on that list, 58%, Miguel Cabrera, Detroit Tigers. Number three on that list, 56%, Alex Avila, Detroit Tigers. And, you know, this is a good list because the next couple guys on that list, Ryan Zimmerman, yes. Cody Bellinger, yes. Miguel Sano, yes. I mean, these are the guys you'd expect to be on that list. They're all over 50%. And, uh, you know, at the bottom of the list, we're like 4%, Ronald Torres, 7%, Tony Walters. So, you know, this list makes a lot of sense. But when I see three Tigers at the top of that list, you know, for the month of May, that that stands out to me. Like, wow, what's going on in Detroit, right? Indeed. Of course, the Tigers' record hasn't really reflected the type of... Uh 12 and 16 in the month of May. So let's let's talk about that for a second. So uh, in the month of May, the Tigers are only 15th in runs scored. They're actually only 23rd in weighted runs created plus, so they're 8 percentage points below average. And part of that's because they have the third highest strikeout percentage in baseball in the month of May. But it's also interesting when you look at the guys in the list. So uh, as we said, Martinez, J.D. Martinez is crushing the ball. Uh, you know, Alex Avila is is unbelievable. We'll talk about him more in a second. You know, Victor Martinez, not on the list, but is crushing the ball. But then you look at some of these other guys. Uh, Nick Castellanos, who is someone else we'll talk about in a second, in May has a 252 on base and a 242 slugging percentage. He's basically slugging like D Gordon on a bad day, except he's hitting the ball really hard. And we'll talk about him in a minute. You know, James McCann has had a, a lousy month. Justin Upton has had a lousy month. Jose Iglesias, 250 on base percentage. You know, Tyler Collins, 237 on base percentage. I think they got rid of him the other day. It's not a team-wide thing. You got these guys crushing the ball and uh, the rest of the team, not so much. The pitching's kind of okay and i guess that's how you end up below 500 for the month yeah it's tough though because you you know when when guys you know not that jd martinez isn't a good player but like when a guy like jd martinez is performing like the way he's performing you sort of hope that will be like the uh the beginning of like a big win streak or you know some but it has not not manifested itself in that way and you know we've talked about comerica a bit on this show before and just how it's sort of become this you know one of the big takeaways or lessons We've uh, we've learned is how suppressive it can, how impressive it can be for certain hitters, certain types of hitters 
who see big gaps between their um, weighted, their expected batting average and slugging as compared to the actual results. Yeah, and I think I wrote this last winter when we first kind of broke out uh, expected weighted on base. The biggest gap last year, or, or one of the top two biggest gaps, was Miguel Cabrera. And it wasn't necessarily that he was unlucky. It's just that he plays in Comerica, and you can hit a 405-foot out. And then also, he's not a, a very fast base runner, so he's not going to beat out infield hits. Yeah, that's it, one of the things we'll have to, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, I, you know, we'll have to pick uh, Tom Tango's brain about it, brain about is maybe trying to figure out a way to, to, to add in speed into um, weighted uh, yeah, well, it's, it's almost two separate things, right? Because like that's true for a more overall inclusive uh, offensive metric. But then also, I kind of like just having like batted ball skill, right? Because if you're trying to break down to what is the guy good at, speed's important, but it's also a totally separate skill set. That's true to have. Uh, but so you kind of mentioned the difference between estimated weighted on base and actual weighted on base. And so estimated weighted on base comes from looking at each batted ball. You look at the exit velocity, you look at the launch angle, and you can you know say based on that, here's what is likely to happen, regardless of what actually happened. And you know you include strikeouts and walks, and you can kind of see who is uh, maybe overperforming or underperforming. Number one on the list so far, the largest gap between estimated and actual weighted on base. Uh, is Nick Castellanos. And this is for the whole season, not just May. This is for the whole season. For the whole season, not just May. Even though in May, he's somehow, like I said, a 252 on base and a 242 slugging. But his estimated weighted on base is 368, right? And the, the major league average is like 316, I think, in that, or 320, something like that. And then his actual is 281. So the difference between estimated and actual, it changes him from a very below average player to kind of a star, but it's just not happening. Obviously, at some point, you got to put runs on the board, and that's what matters. Uh, number two on that list Miguel Cabrera, I think that's uh, that's that's Comerica. I don't know what it is for Castellan. I don't think it's just Comerica. Uh, it, I, mean, I think I think that he has been like unusually unlucky, and this probably bears. And I know unlucky is maybe not the right word, but this bears some more investigation. You know, I think that um, you mentioned that he has uh, this year amongst batted balls that have a. Let me find this. So is on bad, yeah, we're, we're jumping ahead to a different section. Uh, batted balls where the estimated weighted on base would be at least 800, right? And so to put that into some context, uh, like I said, the league average this year is about 320. So these are like very highly productive batted balls, you know, the, the kind of batted balls you want the most. Uh, I think nobody in baseball has hit more than 10 such high-value batted balls that turned into outs, except for Nick Castellanos, who's done it 15 times. I mean, that tells you something, right? So, as you said, I haven't looked at those. I don't know if it's, is it bad luck? Is it they're all to Kevin Kiermeyer and Byron Buxton, right? Is it all to dead center in Comerica? There's, there's a couple of different reasons that this could be. I don't know the answer yet, uh, but it, it is interesting. Nobody, like, you look at his surface stats, he looks awful. But the, you look at the underlying skills, and you understand why the Tigers are interested in keeping him. Yeah, and going back to the Comerica thing, the one thing that I also looked at, I looked at it from a team-wide level, the biggest gaps between... Uh, expected weighted on base and weighted on base, and right now the Tigers have by far the biggest gap in baseball. Um, their weighted expected on, their expected weighted on base is three forty four. Their actual is three twenty one. So that's basically like for me, expected is basically elite and actual is basically average. And it's a twenty a, point, a gap of uh, twenty three points uh, essentially. Over the first two years of the Statcast era, over a full season. No one has had bigger than nine points, a nine-point gap over the course of a full season. So what we're seeing is probably some, like, big noise over the first two months of the season that is probably even, like, you know, making this more extreme than it seems. But the Tigers are, seem to be a victim of some unusual circumstance that is perhaps bringing their offense down uh, at least a notch. I'm, I'm going to put a theory out there, and, and this is a completely untested theory, and I have absolutely no idea if it's true or not. 
in the the schedule's been a little weird this year where in the first month of the season everyone was playing in the division constantly like every time i looked up the tigers were playing the twins like it seemed like every other day so were they potentially playing very good outfield we know the twins have a very good defensive outfield especially buxton max Kepler's good you know the royals for all the struggles this year it's still a pretty good defensive outfield uh the white Sox, a lot of those guys can't hit but like you know jacob may was a pretty good outfielder i, I think one of the garcias is, is is a pretty decent outfielder is it possible that they are just being hit with uh, more difficult defenses like i don't know if that's true in any way whatsoever i, I think it's something interesting to think about it's like you have your next <laughs> i guess so um so anyway real quick about the tigers uh, i do like to look at the expected weighted on base to just find the guy who's doing the best right regardless of outcome quality of contact batted ball profile in addition to strikeouts and walks 365 hitters so far this year have 50 plate appearances number one on that list alex avila which is stunning to me. I mean, Alex Avila, really, of all people. And when you look at the other guys on the, this list, it's like Freeman's on the list, Harper, Trout. Alex Avila, number one. I know it's a small sample. I don't care. It's amazing. It's really he, impressive. He's having a fascinating year. And obviously, you know, the uh, it's pro- his surge probably came a little too late for it to get uh, all-star nods, uh, at least in the voting. Uh, is, is he on the ballot or is it James McCann? I honestly don't remember. McCann, actually. I haven't checked. Anyway, he's not among the top five. Yeah. Neither of them is among the top five in AL uh, Vote getter is a catcher. The first uh, update was announced today with uh, Salvi Perez, not surprisingly. Who's having an okay season? Um, <laughs> leading the way. Uh, but yeah, Vila, you know, we were talking about this earlier. When he signed with the Tigers, it was almost like, oh, is this like nepotism? Right. The <laughs> and to be fair, he was coming off a pretty rough year with the White Sox, but. And he's going to be a free agent this offseason. So it's like suddenly he's like, he's having a career year at a very opportune time. I, he has just been absolutely destroying the ball. We'll see. We'll see if he keeps it up because I think the one thing we don't know enough about our new metrics yet is to know are they describing the past or predicting the future? Which is a very important question and, uh, you know, one we still kind of have on the table. So speaking of guys who crush the ball, I want to get to Chris Davis with a K, but first, a very quick reminder to listen to to the Cut 4 uh, podcast, our friends over at Cut 4. It's the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut 4 section where they focused on the lighter side of baseball. If you made it this far in our podcast, you'll definitely enjoy theirs. It'll make you laugh, and you'll even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week, they bid a fond final farewell to David Ross's Dancing with the Stars career and then broke down Alex Rodriguez's fraught relationship with the High Five. I have no idea what that means, but now I'm really interested to find out. Uh, if that sounds like something you're into, do search Cut Forecast, C-U-T number four, C-A-S-T in iTunes or wherever else you like your podcasts. Uh, and do subscribe because they do some very cool stuff. Let's talk about Chris Davis with a K. We've probably talked about him on this show. Uh, like For a number of reasons, he has almost certainly the weakest outfield throwing arm in all of baseball. And we can measure this, and it's true. His average is like 78 miles an hour or something. Not so good. But... He also is one of the kings of, of barrels, right? And we've talked about this before. So far this year, he is tied with Aaron Judge for the most barrels in baseball at 27. And that's a skill. You can't do that by accident. If you look at the StatCast era, he has a barrel, uh, 17% barrels per batted ball of the 521 guys with at least 100 balls in play. That is the fifth highest. So we know that Chris Davis with a K crushes baseballs. We also know he strikes out a lot. And I find him really interesting because we saw last winter guys with that profile, like the Chris Carters, uh, the Mark Trumbos, they didn't really do so well in the free agent market. Like those kind of high strikeout, high slugger types got a little devalued, let's say, and they had to settle for less money. But I don't know. He stands out to me a little bit more. And, and you know, if you look at his, his lines, it doesn't look like much has changed, right? He's weighted on base uh, in 2015, 353. Last year, 349. This year, 353. That's consistency, right? That's there. extreme consistency. He looks like exactly the same guy he's always been. But if you look at his expected weighted on base, uh, last year, 365, which that's pretty good. That's above average. This year, 
four, 10, right? So now I, I made a list here. Um, I think I had different minimums than when I was talking about Avila. So 258 guys have at least 100 plate appearances. He is 10th of those 258 in expected weighted on base. And uh, the names on the list in front of him are amazing. Freeman, Trout, Judge, Goldschmidt, Miggy, Votto, Yonder Alonso, breakout season, Ryan Zimmerman and Bryce Harper, and then Chris with a K Davis. I mean, that you can't do that by accident. That's showing skill even if the outcome isn't quite there. He's... He- yeah, we was looking back when we were preparing for the show. Looking back on that, uh, the trade that brought him to to uh, Oakland from Milwaukee, Milwaukee, and it's not you know I think it was one of David Stern's first moves as a GM of the Brewers. Yeah, yeah, he he came on board like late August of 2015, and I think this was the next February. And it was Jacob Nottingham and a, and a double A reliever whose name escapes me. Yeah, um, not so good. Not so good <laughs> for the uh, for the Brewers that deal because Davis has turned out to be one of sort of like this. I mean sort of like the stealthy elite sluggers uh, in the game and really kind of the, the you know, he's, he's, he's a star, but obviously he doesn't realize that. I was just looking at the AL uh, all-star voting, again, as a proxy for sort of public opinion on players. He's not even in the top 15 for AL outfielders. Well, that, that is a travesty, and it's an abomination. And, and, you know, part of it is because, you know, he's not a big name. He's not even the biggest guy with his own name, right? And, you know, he, he plays for Oakland. A lot of East Coast people don't stay up and watch Oakland. So I get that in the voting. But here's the thing. I was talking about expected weighted on base, right? So based on quality of contact, and very importantly, including strikeouts, because that's his huge flaw as a strikeouts, he's been one of the top 10 hitters in baseball. But if you look at actual weighted on base, like the real-world production, uh, he's tied for 77th with Jay Bruce, which is fine, I guess, right? But that's a, that's a huge gap. That's a 53-point difference expected versus actual, uh, and that's the seventh largest. And so I wanted to know why. And I thought, okay, well, you know, my, my first instinct is he's hitting the ball hard. He's actually, his high, hard hit percentage is up like six points from last year, which is great. He's hitting the ball harder more often. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe he's hitting it into the ground. Maybe this is Ryan Zimmer from last year. Not really true. Uh, his slugging percentage when he hits the ball hard, 95 miles an hour or over, uh, it's almost identical. Last year it was 1383. This year it's 1369. It's like the same exact thing. Batting average uh, down a little bit on those hard hit balls, but it's only down from 580 to 554. Still quite very good. So when he's hitting the ball hard, which he's doing more often, Production is very similar. It's a little bit worse when he's hitting the ball more softly. I mean, his slugging percentage is down from 152 to 104 on soft hit balls, but I don't know that I really care about that too much. Yeah, also, like, he doesn't have that many soft right. hit like when, he, when he hits the ball, he hits it hard. So I hesitate to, to just go, oh, he's been unlucky. But we did talk about the uh, the expected weighted on base of 800 or higher, like those extremely high-value hits, how Nick Castellanos has 15 outs on those. And second place is Chris with a K Davis tied with a bunch of other guys with nine. So I, I don't really have a good answer. I kind of want to explore this further because any guy who's in the top 10 for expected weighted on base, but is 77th for actual performance, there's got to be an interesting story there, I think. Right? Because we're, we're, I mean, like, you know, Oakland could, there could be a little bit, you know, in, in, you know, it's not necessarily a great place to hit. So I wonder if it has a little bit of, you know, when you hit the ball to deep left center, it has a little bit of that Comerica factor where the ball just kind of dies out there. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't really know, but that would be just, I, I wonder just cause it's not a park that, that this, or it doesn't, it's not a park where you can get kind of cheap, cheap home runs. I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I would love to see that park without Mount Davis to see if actually, that would actually change anything. Yeah, I think that'd be cool. That's one of the theories, isn't it? That when they changed it, it sort of became much less of a hitter, hitter's park where back, you know, before Mount Davis, there was the Bash Brothers and, you know, you had Conchico sure. McGuire, you know. Yeah. 
for, Lean homers out there. For, the, for those who don't know what Mount Davis is, when the, when the Raiders moved back, they added uh, this enormous upper deck, uh, like two tiers, I think, of upper deck to account for the, the football fans. And then uh, that just changed the wind patterns. You know, it, it changed everything about the way the stadium played. And this was, I guess, in the 90s when the Raiders moved back. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's been a while. Um, but I, I think that would be really interesting to check out. So, anyway, we're, we are, this is the most important point. We are including strikeouts and expected weighted on base. And even with that, because he strikes out like 34% of the time, he is still top 10. And I find that fascinating no matter what actually happened. And one more cool Chris Davis thing I want to mention, because I think this is part of what makes him interesting to me, is that you know you mentioned he's tied with Aaron Judge for the Major League Leading Barrels. Aaron Judge is like literally 10 inches taller than <laughs> he's Chris a, Davis. He is a Chris monster Davis of a man. Is, is not, he's listed at 5'10". You know, sometimes those height listings are a little bit... Off, but not as much as the weight listings. Usually, the height listings are pretty, pretty fair. Five ten. That's not. A, that's not a big dude to lead. To lead the league in barrels and to be among the league leaders in barrels for three straight years is pretty impressive. So I actually went back and looked um, over the last three years for players less than six, six feet tall or shorter, uh, as ranked by isolated slugging. So slugging percentage minus batting average. He is far and away the leader for sub six foot players. Two seventy three. Ioannis Cespedes, 256. Jose Bautista, 248. Uh, Brian Joseph, 234. So Chris Davis is like the the patron saint of small dude slugging, and I think that's pretty cool. When we did our uh, – we went around the league in the spring. We asked all the guys who'd added home runs, you know, why did they add home runs? And some guys were like, oh, I elevated. I tried to hit it over the shift, you know, whatever the case may be. Chris Davis actually said, I hit the weight room. And I added like five or ten pounds of muscle and I, before last season. And I was like, I could feel it. When I hit the ball, I could feel it. And I think that shows itself, right? I mean, he hits the ball – He's maybe not quite Miguel Sano, but he's not that far off. And Miguel Sano is another one of those enormous human beings. That's not what Chris Davis is. No, certainly not. So uh, he is, uh, I just realized this is the second week in a row we focused on an Oakland A because we talked about Jesse Hahn last week. So a reminder, uh, the Oakland A's are far more interesting than I think most people think they might be. Now on to the best team in the National League. And uh, I'm saying that without controversy because Matt actually picked this team to win the World Series. The Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, they've been very hot lately and they just took over first place in the National League West yesterday. So they swept the Cubs last weekend, which is kind of a big deal. I know the Cubs are struggling a little bit, but still, if you sweep the Cubs, that's impressive. After Perdomo uh, pitches today. It always comes back to Luis Perdomo. If the Padres sweep the Cubs, then then maybe it's time for, for panic on the north side. Uh, but anyway, I thought this. I remember watching. I watched a lot of that series, and I, this one at bat stuck out to me. Ross Stripling just pounded Kyle Schwarber with high fastballs, and, and you know, grounded out or whatever. And then after the series, Chris Bryant goes to Ken Gurnick, who is our Dodgers.com beat reporter, and he gave what I found to be a very interesting quote. He said, "Their bullpen, every pitch was right there at the top of the strike zone, every single one to all of us. It was unbelievable." And so I thought to myself, "Well, that seems like something I can test." So that's exactly what I did. I looked at all relief pitchers, and I looked just at their fastballs, and I, I excluded split fingers from that because those are really supposed to dive. And uh, I just looked not of all high fastballs because I didn't care about the ones that are super high or outside or whatever. I'm just talking about ones that are high in the strike zone or on the fringe between the strike zone and the top of the strike zone. The Dodgers uh, relievers throw 12% of their fastballs in that zone. No other team in baseball is even up to 8%. Major League average is under 6%. So this is this is clearly not an accident because last year the Dodgers did it the most too at nine percent, and they've jumped up and it's the biggest increase. So this seems like a very very clear strategy, especially when you look at the individual list. Uh, so two hundred ninety relievers have thrown at least fifty fastballs, and I looked at which guys have thrown the most of those in this high in the zone uh, place that I've defined. Number one is a Dodger, Ross Stripling. Number two is a Dodger, Josh Fields. Number three is a Dodger, Chris Hatcher. 
Number seven is a Dodger, Pedro uh, Baez. Number 14, Grand Dayton. Number 16, Kenley Jansen. Now, Kenley Jansen doesn't need to place it. He can just do whatever he wants because he's amazing. But uh, you look at these other three guys, especially the fact that some of them have had really high jumps, and it's a clear team strategy, which is interesting because the rest of baseball has actually gone the other direction. Most teams have not started throwing it higher in the zone, which I kind of thought they might to try to prevent like elevating. Uh, they've gone the other way, I guess, like the Dallas Keuchel mold to try to get more grounders. But the Dodgers have gone the other direction, and the, their bullpen's been amazing. It's been the best bullpen in the National League. It's it's one of those cool things to be able to pull out that you know now with the sort of the access to this type of granular data that we have to sort of see this kind of unique trend. Because the Dodgers, as we know, are deeper, as deep into this into analytics as any club. So it's obvious that this is. This is this is by design. They also play close to the vest. I'm sure we we have to go ask some pitchers and see what they say. But I'm not sure how uh, how revealing they w- they would be. But uh, this is this is clearly no accident. So when I tweeted the story yesterday, I got a couple of people who were like, "Well, high fastballs are bad. You shouldn't throw high fa- fastballs there." And I think that's kind of been the prevailing opinion in baseball. Like I I, I go back to Leo Mazzoni, right? And he was the Braves pitching coach when they were at their peak, and he's always like, "Keep it low, keep it low, keep it low, throw it low. You know, get grounders, keep it low." And I think that that has been a slow opinion to change because uh, there's like a generation of pitchers who've thrown, who've grown up not wanting to throw it high because they're worried that it's going to get hit. And, and to be fair, you do need to have an ability to hit your spots there. I certainly wouldn't recommend Dallas Keuchel start doing that. That seems like a terrible idea. But you know, if you look at the numbers, uh, and I, I kind of split this in the three zones. There's like the high fastballs. I'm talking about the middle fastballs, not just middle, middle, but middle left, middle right, and then bottom. So so far this year, the league average on high fastballs is only 230 compared to 275 in the middle. Two 67 low so that's lower so you'd think well okay but if you get hit up high it's going to go further slugging percentage up high is 414 basically the same as low which is 406 and it's much better than 454 in the middle which is to be expected and here's where it's really interesting the swing strike rate on high fastballs 12.3 six and a half middle 4.8 percent low now what you give back is you're unlikely to get called strikes up there umpires don't usually give you that so there's that but uh, if you can hit your spots like there's a generation of low ball hitters who are who are not used to seeing fastballs there. And the, this, I mean, this reminds me of this. Kind of goes back to the the infamous, not infamous, the uh, famous, and at least in these circles, um, Josh Donaldson segment where he talked about memory um, network this offseason where he was like, "Your little league coaches will teach you hit down on the ball." That's stupid. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. That's dumb. Don't hit down on the ball. Try and elevate. You know, you have to uppercut. And like he basically was challenging this conventional wisdom of like, "Hey, the game has changed." You need to adapt with it and not, you know, not build your game around, you know, orthodoxy from the 1960s. And I, I was starting to think about this as it applies to things like high fastballs. Yeah, I remember when I was in the league, I was taught, you know, pitch low, pitch low, pitch low. But if everyone's trying to uppercut now, the, to me, the way to combat, combat that, place your, your fastball well high in the zone. It's hard, it's hard to uppercut that. And if you do, you'll have a pop-up. And that's the other thing is I think that, you know, we've talked about this before about, you know, pop-ups are basically as good as strikeouts. Um, not uh, so the idea of trying to induce pop-outs is like actually a thing, and as we can kind of parse you know parse data more, and we know that like certain types of pitches, high spin, high fastballs are able to induce pop-ups. Like that's something you should be try, like trying to do. You shouldn't be afraid to make contact if you know you have a good fastball you can place high in the zone. You shouldn't be afraid to th- throw it there. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I thought the same thing about high spin, and and it didn't actually correspond with the Dodgers. Like they don't have a 
you know, a team wide high spin. But, uh, you know, we've had some famous examples of this, like Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer. You know, uh, we, these are guys who have high spin fastballs and the ability to place them. And when they throw these high fastballs in the zone at high spin, the hitters just have no chance. I mean, it makes that 93 feel like 98. You know, I mean, this, that's kind of the whole point is to, you know, make it look worse to the hitter. And if you can, if you can put it there, you should basically. I mean, I mean this is. This, I mean, Tyler Clipper built a career on this. Basically, he became an effective reliever even when he throws like ninety one because he throws a high, <laughs> hey, high spin fastball up in the zone that gets a surprising amount of swings and misses and a surprising amount of weak weak fly balls. Yeah, and then you know the Dodgers, by the way, on those uh, those high fastballs, uh, they have they've allowed only um, a two seventeen weighted on base against. That's the best in baseball. The league average is three oh six, and the last ranked team, Washington, four ninety eight. So when they are throwing it up there. No, it doesn't work out so well. So it can't just be like where you put it. It's also got to be an actual good pitch. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's an interesting thing about the Dodgers who look like they're the best team in the National League right now. We are going to finish our show with a Hall of Fame induction. And I know since Matt is the resident San Diego Padres fan around here, let's go to one of Luis Perdomo's teammates, Hunter Renfro. Why are we talking about him? Uh, Monday uh, against the Cubs, fly ball to medium depth, Right field, Addison Russell, a fairly fast runner on third. Hunter Renfro makes the catch. Russell takes two steps and basically stops because he knows what the league is now learning, which is that Hunter Renfro has an arm as good as anyone this side of Aaron Hicks. It's, it's an absolute cannon. And when we've, lo- when we've looked at these outfield throws before, which this was 101.6 miles an hour, by the way. We've looked at some of these throws before on sack flies, and what I found is a lot of them are based on momentum, right? Like the guy circles around, and he's taken a couple steps in, so by the time he catches the ball, he's already got some force behind him. Hunter Renfro did not do that. He basically just stood under it and ha- was just standing completely still and threw it essentially flat-footed. And it wasn't on target, but the runner wasn't going anyway. And I remember I saw the catcher. I don't even know who it was. Hedges, probably. He jumped up to get it, and it looked like one of those cartoon plays where he jumps up, and the ball hits his mitt, and he gets thrown back like three feet. You know, this is 200 feet away. It was on a fly. By the way, you have to go watch the play. Uh, It was on a fly. Um, So there was no bounce here. And, yeah, to Mike's point, you know, like when Aaron Hicks made his 105.5-mile-an-hour throw last year, it was perfect mechanics in terms of, like, how you would – you know, this was – this was Tom Amansky, like, like he would be, applaud you for the way Aaron Hicks did this. It was like he lined up behind it, he caught the ball right at his chest, was in perfect throwing position, like perfect mechanics to really get everything he could on this throw. Hunter Renfro like caught it like almost like Andrew Jones style, like <laughs> on the left hand, and then just unleashed this just cannon to home plate. Addison Russell like just faked running, you know, it was just like was sort of like yeah, you know, like this is the play like not to, you know beat up on Chris Davis too much, but the kind of play, Chris Davis caught it, you would jog home. You know, and it's like, with Hunter Renfro, Edison Russell, he knew this guy in report. He was like, I'm not even going to try. Well, I will give some credit to the MLBPipeline.com scouting report from two years ago where it said, defensively, Renfro's arm strength is nearly as impressive as his power, and uh, we know his power has been pretty good. So it, we, uh, we actually, we're putting this in the Hall of Fame today because it is the hardest track to throw of the year so far and since 2015 we have tracked 45 regular season throws at 100 miles an hour or more he is one of just a dozen players to do it twice and as i like to say you know people complain when these throws aren't online i get this all the time like jackie bradley's a great example he'll make a 100 mile an hour throw and it's offline and i'll tweet it and people will get upset because well i wasn't off target the run scored i'm like yes that is a flaw but arm strength is a skill you cannot fake that like that is an actual skill that he has and and we should credit him for that and the best part of of, of this is that uh our Padres reporter aj casavo asked asked hunter renfro if that's the hardest he's ever thrown a baseball and without even without a smirk uh renfro said no not at all 
I've got more. How much more? That was 101.6 miles an hour. The fastest, as you, you said, we've seen is 105.5. He can't have that much more. But we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to wait and see. But if he can do that flat-footed, I think we got to get AJ to go talk to Hunter Renfro and say, "Can you try to do this with momentum next time?" You know, it's in terms of you know, in terms of pure kind of tools from a you know, scanning perspective, tools. You know, Renfro to me has, has turned out to be one of the more fun Statcast players because we've seen based on his power, he's hit like a couple of absolute mammoth home runs and his arm, that he has two, like, probably what you would call 70-grade tools. And there's not many players in baseball that have that. This is why this is so fun, because if you were just to ask, like, the common average baseball fan, the Padres may be one of the more nondescript teams, I think, to most people. But we look at the Padres, obviously, your love obsession with Luis Perdomo, right? We get to talk about Hunter Renfro. I think Austin Hedges has, like, the best pop time in baseball or very close to it. This is actually a really really fascinating team and uh this is that's what yeah. makes us fun not statcast party they're also giving uh, starting alan cordoba regularly a rule five pick who did not play above the appy league uh until this year who's also one of the most fascinating players in baseball <laughs> for completely other reasons well uh, we're gonna wrap up the show and uh, head back upstairs and watch at least perdomo against the cubs let's see if the padres can finish off the sweep this is our show this is the statcast podcast for this week i'm mike petriello that's matt myers thanks for listening we'll catch you next week